First, they see the native Seminole people leaving. Then they see the snakes leave, and the deer and the possums and the rabbits going east and east. Then the buzzards all get together and head up above the clouds and stay there. But Janie and Tea Cake and all their other friends working in Florida are, as migrant workers, they're not working, worried. They're not working, and they're not worried. They stick around, and they have themselves a party. They don't start to worry until in a sudden burst of lightning and thunder, the storm arrives. A hurricane, the Florida hurricane of 1928. And they quickly realize they are in big trouble. The day turns to night, and it stays night. The lights go out. The storm rages. And in the scene from which Zora Neale Hurston's novel takes its name, the characters stare at the storm in the night. They seemed to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. In this second week of Epiphany, given everything going on right now, we might feel like we are those characters staring into the storm at its path of destruction, staring at the dark. The season of Epiphany is often when we talk about the good news revealed about Jesus as light in contrast to the darkness of sin. And that's a powerful metaphor for us, and it's certainly a lot in Scripture. But it's also good for us to remember that it's just a metaphor. Our lectionary passages today remind us that we can see God at work not just in the brightness of day, in the brightness of light, but in the dim darkness, too. For as Psalm 139 says, one of the verses that gets cut out in our lectionary, the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. That psalm speaks to us, too, of God's beautiful work in the safe darkness of a mother's womb. God created night as well as day. So we can watch for God even in the dark. Today, our passages give us two pairs of characters that speak to us about what it means to watch for God in the dark. Samuel and Eli, Jesus and Nathaniel, and then we'll get to us. So let's look first at Samuel and Eli. I already said a little bit about that today. We're told at the very beginning of our passage that these were not Israel's glory days. The word of the Lord was rare. Eli was nearly blind, physically and, we learn, morally as well. In chapter 2, right before this, we learned about what his family had been up to. Now, in this part of Israel's history, priesthood was a family thing. Eli was part of the priestly line, and his sons were meant to follow him as priests. But his sons were abusing their position big time. They were taking the best parts of the sacrifices people were offering for themselves, the best cut of the meat, which was supposed to be given to God. They were using their power to change the rules by force and make the worshipers obey them, and they were abusing the women serving at the temple. Sounds awfully contemporary, doesn't it? Eli scolds his sons about the women, but otherwise seems to do kind of nothing. And despite the fact that in this chapter we're told that the word of the Lord was rare, in the previous chapter we're told that a man of God does come to Eli and say, Thus says the Lord, you're honoring your sons more than me by eating the best parts of these offerings, and I'm going to remove the priesthood from your family. He had a very clear warning. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't even respond. So God speaks again through the boy Samuel. 
And Samuel hears and responds right away, but he doesn't know God's voice yet. I love what we see about Samuel's character and how quick he is to respond to God's voice, even when he doesn't know that it's God. Eli has to teach Samuel to recognize God's voice. And I love what that says about Eli, that his failings stand alongside his faithfulness as a priest of many years. Both things are true about Eli. Both things are often true of us as well. In that darkness, God speaks. In that darkness, Samuel listens, and so does Eli. In the darkness, Samuel responds, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Now, often we end the story there, and you can understand why. But today we don't. What God reveals to Samuel is a difficult word. God reveals to Samuel, I warned Eli and his family, and now it's time for me to bring that judgment. God reveals to Samuel that Eli's priestly line will end and a new line begin. Not just Eli's sons are judged, but Eli also, because of the sin he knew about and did nothing to restrain or end. That sin he did not commit directly and yet benefited from. The things done and the things left undone. God's word to Samuel in the dark revealed sin and judgment for sin, a violent ending, and a new beginning. No wonder Samuel couldn't go back to sleep after that. Now, Samuel's response is the one that we often focus on, this obedience and innocence and courage, the making of a prophet. But I'm most intrigued today by Eli's response. He wants to know what the Lord said to Samuel, no matter what it was. He didn't have to ask. God didn't even tell Samuel he was supposed to tell Eli. But Eli wants to know the word of the Lord, even if it's a word of judgment. And when he hears the word, he responds with recognition and resignation. It is the Lord. He recognizes God's word when he hears it. And also, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. I'm really torn on that one. On the one hand, there's wisdom in submitting to what the Lord says. That's what most of the commentaries focus on. But I can't help but wonder, what if Eli had repented? He certainly had that chance when the other man of God came around and he did nothing. There are so many times in the Old Testament when God pronounces judgment, but people repent and God spares them. What if Eli had repented even here? But he doesn't. And the word of the Lord comes to pass. Samuel is raised up as a prophet. Eli's family are cast down as priests. In the near dark of the story of Samuel and Eli, we watch God reveal. Reveal sin, judgment, and apathy side by side with obedience, faithfulness, and the word of the Lord. Now, the dark where we watch for God in the story of Jesus and Nathanael is more figurative than literal. Jesus has been baptized. John has testified, I saw the Spirit descend on him. Jesus has begun calling disciples, but he hasn't done anything yet. Do you notice that? No signs yet, no miracles, no teaching. There's no neon lights pointing to him, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. So you might say that people are still in the dark about who Jesus is. 
Nathaniel is such an interesting character. His, his exclamation, Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? It's so honest and so human. We could substitute a hundred of our own towns or terms in there, and it would feel fresh. Nazareth was a little podunk town. And more crucially, there was nothing in Scripture pointing to Nazareth as a place from which the Messiah would come. Nathaniel knew that, so no wonder he was skeptical. A hick from a town that's not on the Bible map? Why bother? He knows how and through whom God works, and this ain't it. If Nathaniel looks just at Jesus' credentials, he would remain in the dark about who Jesus is. But Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel does. But when they meet, it's Jesus who speaks first. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. When you were under the fig tree, I knew you. Before you knew me, before you saw me, I saw you. Your body was not hidden from me when you were made in secret and woven in the depths of the earth. There are many extraordinary things about this encounter, but two things stand out to me. First, that Jesus saw Nathaniel first, truly saw him, knew his heart and his character supernaturally. We don't know exactly what Nathaniel experienced under the fig tree, but it's clear that Nathaniel did, and it was enough to give him sight about who Jesus was, enough for him to see God in the dark. The other thing that's extraordinary is what Jesus' words call forward in Nathaniel. Debbie Thomas speaks to this. You all know I love my Debbie Thomas. She says this, I wonder what would have happened if, instead of calling out Nathaniel's purity of heart, Jesus had said, here is a cynic who's stunted by doubt, or here's a man who's governed by prejudice, or here is a man who's blunt and careless in his words, or here's a man who sits around, passive and noncommittal, waiting for life to happen to him. Any one of those things might have been true of Nathaniel, but Jesus looked past them all to see an honesty, a guilelessness, a purity of thought and intention that made up the true core of Nathaniel's character. Maybe the other qualities were there as well, but with Nathaniel's heart have melted in wonder and joy if Jesus saw and named those first. Or would he have withdrawn in shame and fear and despair and embarrassment? Jesus named the quality he wanted to bless and cultivate in his would-be follower, the quality that made Nathaniel a person of beauty, an image-bearer of God. Jesus, God incarnate, calls forward who Nathaniel was created to be and to become. The opposite of that biblical patriarch, Jacob, full of deceit, the one Israel and Israelite are named after. Jacob, who in the darkness of night has a revelation from God and sees the angels of God on the ladder ascending and descending and hears God's promise of covenant and awakes and realizes the Lord was in this place and I didn't see it. And now Nathanael stands before Jesus in the darkness and realizes the Lord is in this place and now I see it. Jesus calls forward the true image-bearing character of Nathanael. And that gives Nathanael the ability to see God even in the dark. In the figurative darkness of Nathanael's encounter with Jesus, we watch God calling forward. Calling forward people to be his followers, his disciples. 
and calling forward the character their relationship with him will bring into being. So far, so good. But now we come to us. We who also stare at the dark, watching for God. Theologian Dr. Chiniqua Walker-Barnes writes this, It is easy and all too common to confuse watching for God as a passive acceptance of reality. But watching for God is an act of holy observation and subversive hope. In the midst of turmoil, chaos, and despair, it asks, what is God doing? And what would God have us do? Our two stories ask us two similar questions to consider this morning as we watch for God. First, what is God revealing? What is being revealed right now? In our nation? In the church broadly? In our church? In me and in you? What has COVID revealed? What have this year's racial protests revealed? What has the continual stream of abusive megachurch men revealed? What did the storming of our nation's capital reveal? And what are our responses to all of the above revealing? Not about them, but about us. Are we willing to say, like Eli, tell it to me plain, don't hide anything from me, what do you say about all this, God? What sin and judgment is being revealed in this present moment? Are we willing to stop spending so much energy denying it and avoiding it and excusing it and doing nothing about it and instead, like the Israelites with the snakes in the desert, turn and look at it so that we might be saved? The bad fruits of Christian nationalism are being revealed. The deadly power of white supremacy is being revealed. Our idolatry of power and celebrity and our personal rights is being revealed. Our hardness of heart is being revealed. Our spiritual shallowness is being revealed. Our anger and lack of forgiveness is being revealed. Our contempt for those on the other side is being revealed. Our hypocrisy and willingness to uphold truth only when it favors our side is being revealed. Our culture of death and violence are being revealed. Our disconnection and cynicism and powerlessness and fear are being revealed out there and in here. This is who we are. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This is what judgment feels like. How will we respond, church? Will we see it? Or will we sweep it under the rug again and deny it? Will we, like Eli, be judged for the sin we knew about and did nothing about? Or will we see it and turn to the Lord and repent and be saved? What is being revealed? But as we watch for God in the dark, we also ask, what is God calling forth? What is being called into being? whether a seed or a bud or a blossom. 
in the midst of all that feels destructive, where might Jesus be speaking to us the truth about who we are, who we were created to be, just as he does with Nathaniel? What is God calling forward in you, in us, in me? I'm seeing God calling forward great generosity in our community this year and more outward focus and vision and passion than we've had so far as a community. Yes, Lord, call it forward. I'm seeing God call forward greater courage and freedom in our local leaders, myself included, and in our diocese as well. Yes, Lord, call it forward. I'm seeing God call forward Christians in our nation who have a renewed understanding of how we're called to worship rightly and love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes, Lord, call it forward. What is being called forth in you? What beautiful thing is being called forth in you? And what beautiful things are being called forth in us? I have fewer answers for this question right now. The destructiveness has been so easy and terrifying to see. But I am confident that in this darkness, God is calling forth new and beautiful things even now. Call it forward, Lord. In the dark, our eyes are watching you. I want to close with a story from Doctor Who. What else? It's a British sci-fi show. It's very strange. I was a big fan of it. I dressed up as a character for my 30th birthday. Some of you remember that. I haven't tracked with it for a while, but there's an episode from several years ago that really stuck with me and has been kind of ringing in my mind. Uh, If you haven't seen the show, the doctor is an alien, yes, a traveler through time and space, usually saving the day. He and his companion find themselves on a spaceship far in the future after the Earth has been destroyed. It's bearing what's left of the human race to a far-off planet where they can build a new life and survive. It'll take many years, even centuries, for them to get there, and their survival totally depends on this ship and this journey. Their ruler, Queen Elizabeth X, asks the doctor for help, because she's investigating. There are mysterious parts of the ship that are off-limits. People disappear. There are these weird mechanical beings that you make angry if you look into it too much. It's clear that something on this ship is really wrong, and someone doesn't want them to learn more. But who is it? Who's behind it? Eventually, of course, they get to the heart of the matter. Deep below, in the engine room, they discover that the entire ship is harnessed to the back of a giant creature called a star whale. They had captured the star whale and forced the creature to power their ship. They shocked it to keep it moving and make it go faster. They didn't like it, but without the star whale as their engine, they'd be stranded in space. They wouldn't survive. So what choice did they have? Liz the Tenth is outraged and demands to know who did all of this and kept it from her. But then the engine workers play her a recording, a recording of her. As it turns out, she's been here before in this engine room. On the recording, she tells her future self the truth about this creature and tells her she has a choice. Remember or forget. If she remembers, she either lives with the knowledge of this thing they've done, or she can free the creature but ruin her people. If she forgets, she can save her people and feel freedom from that pain, that moral pain, 
but this creature will continue to suffer. She's been here before, and each time she has chosen to forget and forget and forget. But this time, with the doctor's help, she chooses to remember, and she chooses to set the creature free. And when the star whale is released, suddenly the ship lurches as this beautiful creature actually goes faster than before, freely and joyfully bearing them through the night. When terrible things are revealed, it feels like the knowledge of it will destroy us. It's easier to look away or deny or minimize or forget. That is not the way of Jesus. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Things are being revealed. Look for what God is doing. Things are being called forth. Look for what God would have us do. We may seem to be staring at the dark, but our eyes are watching God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.